Well, if you would, open up your Bibles. We're looking in the New Testament at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's printed in your bulletin as well, but it's on page 965 in your, in your uh, pew Bible. We've been moving through a sermon series titled Pursuing Greatness. And today's sermon focuses upon what pursuit of greatness looks like in light of the brokenness that is in this world. The brokenness of this world and of our lives is constantly pressing in on us. And we go to great lengths to shield ourselves from the brokenness of life. We carefully pick our friends so that we don't have the really needy ones nearby. We seek to amass wealth or move to nicer neighborhoods. And we may succeed in some of these efforts, but in the end, as we saw in a previous sermon on eternity, in the end, all of our efforts ultimately fall short. In our passage, though, Paul shows us uh, a cure for our brokenness, a, a remedy. And not just for our brokenness, but for the entire world's brokenness. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. To the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this word to us. It is an encouragement to our hearts. May we see this great truth that you have for us, this treasure for us to lay claim of, and this work that you're doing in your people and through your people for your glory, a work of redemption and restoration and renewal of all things. May we treasure this in our hearts. May your spirit enlighten us here so we can comprehend. We pray that you would lift the veil that clouds our eyes to see your glory and to understand your plan, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Really? We say that to our kids? Recite that with them as they're going to bed? Seems kind of like a whacked out nursery rhyme, doesn't it? It ends in peril and disgrace. It's a depressing rhyme. Humpty Dumpty, the king's men, Humpty's broken, the king's men can't fix him. It ends with quite a resonance of frustration and hopelessness. But before we get all mad at Mother Goose and wonder why in the world she would write such a thing, I don't even know who Mother Goose is. I tried to do some research on Mother Goose. There's no such person as Mother Goose, just in case you wanted to know. But anyway, it's a Mother Goose nursery rhyme. And what we see here is that the world is broken. And we are not really capable of fixing it. We're all a mixture of Humpty Dumpty and the King's men. We're, we're all broken, and despite our best abilities, we can't fix ourselves nor fix a lot of the problems that are around us. Now, when I say broken, let's make sure we understand what we're getting at. I'm not saying that human beings are completely shattered and broken and incapable of anything good. That's not the point that we're making here. Remember, our first sermon was on uh, greatness in light of God's glory. God has made mankind in God's image to reflect this glory. But that glory has been bruised and it's broken by the fall. We are in many ways like worn out windshield wiper blades. Just as a worn windshield wiper blades is able to move a lot of water, it leaves behind a lot of streaks. So too our lives. We're made in God's image to reflect his glory. But in our brokenness, we leave around a lot of streaks. I know my own life. I leave around a lot of streaks. And so do you. My streaks lay on top of your streaks, on top of somebody else's. And brokenness is experienced in our lives and in our communities and in our world. And we feel the weight of this. Paul talks about this. this we're tempted to often to lose heart. Young people, students, you know what that's like, right? You think you have a good friend in school only to find out that they turn their back on you, they start gossiping about you, saying mean things. Or they, people, students will judge you by what you wear or what you don't wear or how smart you are or how pretty or not pretty you are. The way to this world and its brokenness is all around us. Yesterday, I conducted a memorial service for a 42-year-old man who took his own life a couple weeks ago and he left behind a wife and a daughter and a mother and a father and lots of friends. <laughs> Some of you can empathize with what was going through his mind. You've experienced the despair in your lives. You've experienced hopelessness. And you say, yeah, I can understand. Some of you, though, can't. Some of you are, are, some of you say, I don't know how anybody could do such a thing like that. 
Don't they know you just got to keep a stiff upper lip and just work real hard? Look what I'm doing. You just got to pick up and keep going. Life isn't all that bad. That's a prideful response, isn't it? Guess what? Pride is brokenness. It's a prideful man who's a windshield wiper, worn out and pushing a lot of water, saying, look at all this water I'm pushing. All the while, there's that other windshield wiper blade coming in behind, saying, if you only knew how many streaks I was cleaning up behind you. My friends, if greatness really truly is to be experienced in this life, Our brokenness must be dealt with. There must be some sort of remedy, and not a human remedy. We've had thousands of years, countless generations of human beings trying to fix the problems of humanity. We need a remedy from above. And what we see here, what Paul shares with us, is there is a remedy. God gives us a hope. He he implants in us a, a treasure of hope. He gives us a remedy so that we do not lose heart and, in fact, triumph. Here and now. So we're going to look at this treasure that God gives us. We're going to spend our time looking at two things. The treasure and the treasury. What is the treasure? Paul writes in verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, uh, jars of clay, that's the treasury. We'll get to that later. But he says, um, we have this treasure What is this treasure? Well, it must be somewhere in the preceding verses. In verses 1 through 6, it's not all that clear. It could be, is it the ministry that God gave him by his grace? Or was it God's word? Is it the light of the gospel? Is Is it Christ is Lord? What is this treasure that Paul speaks of? And here's what I think it is. The, the, the treasure is a heart shaped by the gospel or, or a gospelized heart. In the Bible, when we refer to heart, it's not just about your emotions, right? Some people say you wear your heart on your sleeves. No, uh, in the Bible, the heart is the place where your longings brew and where decisions are made and then acted upon. To see this gospelized heart, we need to go a little bit earlier into this letter, into chapter 3. Paul reminds the Corinthians of when God gave the Ten Commandments and how Moses came down and he had this, uh, um, he radiated off of his face the glory of God. He spent so much time in God's presence that it it, it radiated off of of his face like the sun. He had to wear a veil over his face in order to protect his fellow Israelites. Paul says in chapter, Paul is basically saying, um, leading up to this, he's saying, as wonderful as God's law is, as wonderful as, as the glory that's shown on the face of, of Moses, how much more glorious is the eternal radiance to be found in, in the face of Jesus Christ? And, and he goes to talk about the law, and the law, as good as it is, um, the law only really leads to, to death. He has some harsh words about God's law. And then he says, but how much more so God's grace that we find in Jesus Christ. And, and here's, here's what he says. He says, and he writes, and you, he's talking to the church, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God's remedy for the brokenness in his good creation isn't to give us a list of rules in order to learn how to better behave. It's to give us new hearts 
in which the Spirit of God places the life of Christ and his grace. Hearts that beat for God, hearts that come alive be, uh, to Christ and his mercy and his grace towards us. With this in mind, let's, let's look closer at this treasure in verse 6. There we do see that this is a, a new creation that God works in his people. We read there, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this all mean? Paul's taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke. God created by speaking. He spoke into darkness and there was light. This is a, an act of God's creation. Now, what Paul is showing us here is that in Paul's life and in his fellow co-laborers' life and in, and in the fellow Corinthians' lives and in, in your life, God has done a work of recreation, of giving his people a new heart. This shouldn't surprise us. We see it in the Old Testament where in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God promised to, to, to give us a new heart, a heart that beats for God, to take out the heart of stone and give us a, a heart of flesh that beats for him. Here's what N.T. Wright says on this. He says, check this out. The gospel isn't about a different God, someone other than the world's original creator, but about the same creator God, bringing new life and light to his world, the world where death and darkness have made their home and usurped his role. Paul summarizes God's command in Genesis 1 in order to say, what happened to me that day, what happened to you when you believed, and what happens to everyone who turns to the Lord is a moment of new creation. Paul will later say in this very same letter, he'll say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The good news of the gospel isn't that God has abandoned us in our brokenness, but rather light has entered into the darkness in the person of Jesus Christ, God's own son. In our passage Paul makes sure we understand that this Jesus is God himself. And he is the savior of the world. And so when you look to Christ in faith, you become a new creation. God plants this new heart in you. He gives you this gospelized heart and this new reality. It's a spiritual work that promises a future physical work. Just as Christ has risen to be a new creation, so too all who are in Christ will rise one day to be a new creation. We see that towards the end of our passage. That's why Paul writes that as you look at Christ, um, Christ radiates the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Christian, the reason why you're able to not lose heart isn't because you've developed some, some special psychological coping mechanisms. It's not because you've gone out and bought some nice new gadgets to, to take your mind off of your troubles or, or because you've medicated yourself so you find yourself in a state of not so sad as I used to be, right? Um, Christian, the reason why you're able to not lose heart is because God has given you a new heart. A heart given to you by God's mercy. A heart whereby you can see God's glory in the face of your Savior. 
a heart that knows that God is up to something good. A heart that sees suffering in a whole new light. A heart that now has a genuine hope. A heart that knows that God will make all things new again. That's a gospelized heart. There's great power in a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. This is the treasure that God gives you by his mercy. The gospelized heart. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes about this treasure and how it helps when we're tempted to lose heart. He writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let thanksgiving and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he writes, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a peace that passes all understanding. And it's what a gospelized heart experiences. It doesn't make sense. The circumstances you're in are beyond any sort of human coping. And yet we are at peace. You've experienced that, haven't you, Christian? There's no earthly explanation why we're at peace. And that's because, as Paul says, this is, this is the peace of God. It's not the peace that says, don't worry, your 401k is big enough. It's not the peace that says, don't worry, your boss is going to leave soon, you'll get a new one. This is the peace that comes to you despite the fact that your 401k is puny. And despite the fact that your boss is the owner's son, and he's not leaving anytime soon. Some of you work for those people, I see. <laughs> This is God's peace and it passes all understanding and, and this is your peace that you have in Jesus Christ. It will guard your hearts. It will guard your minds. This peace lifts the soul in the midst of your difficult trials. It lifts us to what? Not look at our circumstances, but to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's our peace. Therefore, we must look to him. But this is not a remedy that much of the world embraces. We see that in verses two through four. You know, in, in Paul's day, all throughout the, the, the Mediterranean, the ancient Near East, there would be philosophers and teachers. They go from village to village. They'd stay a day or two, a week or two or months, and they would gather followers, and they would get paid, and they were eloquent speakers, and they'd say great and interesting things, and people would, they would wax eloquently and, and give the latest, greatest knowledge, and people would listen. Some of them even came in saying they were Christians, but they, they had a little bit different gospel message. Uh, they, they would soften it. They would tone it down a little bit, a uh, um, little less blood. In the message, if you, it really, it's about you got to do some things and then God will be pleased with you. Yeah, you can be a Christian. People today do this too. Many a preacher would get up and, and speak of watered down gospel. It won't talk much about the justice of God or even mention hell or Satan or anything like that. And a lot of preachers would just say, you know, come to Jesus and your life will be happy. You will be healthy. You will avoid suffering and hardship and, and brokenness of this world. Just come to him. Have your best life now. That's the title of a famous preacher's book. Your best life now. 
It sold millions of copies. The gospel says your best life is not now. Good life, yes. Any life that's been entrusted to Christ is a good life. But best life, no. Your, your best life is still to come. Your best life will come when Jesus returns. And that new creation that he's begun in you, spiritually, will be completed physically. Upon a physically renewed and restored earth in which there is no more brokenness. That is where your best life is to be found. That's not a message people want to embrace. Why is it hard? Well, Paul says it's because the gospel's veiled. Just like Moses had to put a veil over his face and cover the glory because it was just too much to behold, the gospel is veiled. It's veiled by God's enemy. We see that it's veiled by there's one who is blinded. The ruler of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's a true spiritual battle. The enemy is keeping people from seeing the gospel and believing this truth. I remember what it was like to walk in spiritual blindness. Maybe you do as well. I became a Christian when I was 29. And I used to think that people who were religious, especially Christians, were weak people. You know, and I used to ridicule my Christian friends. I would say, like, OK, so all your sins are forgiven. Really? Right. Why don't you just go out and kill someone then? If you know, and go to heaven. Ha ha ha. Yeah, I was that guy. My, my smugness must have been nauseating. But I was at that time blind to my own need for mercy. I was blind to how wonderful God's grace is towards people like you and me. Now. Now, when I think of the cross and what God has done for us, that truth that God became man and died for us so that we can have life in him, have our sins forgiven. When I think of that now, compared to all the other truths that, that I believe, that makes the most sense. There is no other truth that makes more sense now that the veil has been lifted. Perhaps you've experienced that as well. But I don't get the credit. This is God's work in my life. This is his mercy towards me. And, and if it's his mercy towards you that we come to believe this message. And therefore, that's why it's a treasure. That's why it's a treasure for us to hold on to. That's the treasure. How about the treasury? What's a treasury? Well, in simple terms, a treasury is any place you put your treasure. Could be a bank vault or a treasure chest. All the pirate movies, they seem to be in some cave in the Caribbean or something, just piled full of doubloons and stuff. But anyway, a treasury is wherever you place your treasure. And, and Paul tells us this amazing reality is that God stores up treasure in the most peculiar places. Verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. In the ancient world, jars of clay were a dime a dozen. If you cracked one, you threw it out. It was disposable. Who really cared? It wasn't like a fine brass jar. If you broke your, your bronze jar, you would send it to a craftsman and you'd have it fixed and made it new, made, made new again. But not so with jars of clay. If Paul were writing today, he would probably say, but we have this treasure in Ziploc bags. <laughs> 
Who keeps a Ziploc bag? A couple crumbs in it, and we still throw it out, right? Who would store a treasure in a Ziploc bag or a clay jar? Paul says that God has done so. The treasure is this, that God has placed this gospelized heart into fragile human life. Body and soul, you are a jar of clay. And this treasure of this new creation, this, this gospelized heart that beats for God's glory, it's contained in fragile human life. A life that's vulnerable to disease and, and to decay and to, to sorrow and to depression. Quite an unlikely place. Paul wants us to see it's not a mistake, but this is God's plan. It's a plan of the Trinity, in fact. First, we see the power of God the Father, then the presence of the Son, and the purpose of the Spirit. The power of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The adjective surpassing is the Greek word hyperbole. It's where we get the English word hyperbole, but the Greek word has a little bit different meaning. Uh, It means in excess or beyond. God works his power in us in a way that's above and beyond, more than necessary. It's a a power that is, is so powerful that people take notice, that we take notice. Could you imagine a football quarterback who could throw the ball 100 yards? Those of you who don't know football, that's a long way. It's like, okay, watch, watch the game this afternoon. It, it's impossible, all right? If, if a quarterback is able to throw the ball 100 yards, you know that there's some supernatural power upon this quarterback. Paul is showing us that this is how the ordinary Christian life is. Uh, the things that we're able to do because we've got this gospelized heart is really, it's, we're doing in, in Ziploc bags or we're, we're jars of clay and God's, God's the one who powerfully works in us. It's His glory being displayed in our lives. In verse 8, we see the practical outworking of His power. We see it in broad brushstrokes. When we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Please understand and take note, this is not a picture of God taking his people out of their brokenness, right? No, but rather, this power comes to us in the midst of our brokenness. I've said this before, a lot of people miss out on God in their life because they're, they're trying in their own strength to get out of the circumstances they're in as opposed to letting God meet them in the midst of their circumstances. That's the power, the power of God the Father. Paul's using a broad brushstroke of what we experience. In the next verses, though, he gets out the fine-tipped brush, and he shows how this power, how it works in our lives. And he gets us from the Father to the Son, from power to presence. He shows us that we have the presence of Christ in our lives. A couple things. He shows us that there is a person to embrace, and there is a principle to embrace. First, the person. Paul presents us that God's all-surpassing power comes about in our lives because of a person in our lives. Look at verse 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. My friends, the Christian carries around in our bodies the, the, the death of Christ. It's always apparent to us. It's fixated in our lives. It, uh, we belong to Christ and he to us. His death and his resurrection are part of, of our reality. We are in Christ. And so too his death and resurrection. Elsewhere, Paul writes that the, that the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you. The gospel does this amazing thing. It, it implants in us Christ. You know, the motto of GP, uh, Grace Presbyterian Church is, it is what? It is alive in Christ. Christ gives us life and our life is lived through him as he dwells in us. We also embrace the principle of Christ, not just him himself. Here's the principle that Christians embrace, at least as we mature. Okay? Early on in your Christian walk, this might be kind of a concept that's hard to understand, but as you mature, as Paul has matured, we, we come to this principle that the presence of Christ brings into our life, and that's there, there is no crown without a cross. There's no crowns without the cross. Or as Paul puts it, and I'm paraphrasing in verse 12, death in us, gives life to others. Death in us gives life to others. Others. Remember last week we talked about how the kingdom of Christ is upside down to our world and our ways. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Uh, those who are great in the kingdom must be servants. Jesus says that we are to pick up our crosses and follow him. There is no glory without the cross. And Paul says there is no life without death. Do you see that in verse 12? So death is at work in us but life in you. Jesus said in John 12, he says, truly, I truly, truly, <laughs> that's not what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the principle. People in our day and age go to great lengths to avoid the crosses, to avoid those things. Gated communities, timeshares, stock portfolios, health club memberships. We do a good job of putting up walls to separate us from those needy friends, right? That's why as you get older, you have less and less friends, right? Because we're all needy, we're all broken, and we don't want to spend a lot of time with each other, right? That's the way of the world. We put up walls, we hide, um, and we watch Netflix for hours. And the people who are really good at doing this, at separating themselves, at creating space, at creating wealth to distance themselves from the brokenness of this world, people of this world call them great. Travel in a limo or a jet, got the timeshare, able to jet off. If only we could be like them, wouldn't have so much brokenness in our lives. But the principle of the kingdom is that greatness wears a crown of thorns. There is no crown without the cross. Just as our Savior entered into the brokenness of this world, that through his death he might give us life, so too we enter into the brokenness of others, so that as we give of ourselves and die to ourselves, they experience life. 
Christian, that's your calling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or maybe a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. And T. Wright says, if you want to see resurrection at work here and now in your own life, you have to be prepared to see crucifixion at work as well. Have you guys ever been to Las Vegas? It's all right. You can confess it. All right. I've been there a few times. All right. Um, Trade shows, right? Um, If you've been there, perhaps you took a day trip to Hoover Dam. Amazing sight to behold. 1.4 million cubic yards of concrete. The concrete is still curing to this day. It's also the place where the hard hat was invented. And despite the inventions of man to deal with the brokenness of the worksite, 112 people died building the Hoover Dam. When the dam was completed, they got a bronze plaque with all their names, and here's what it reads. These died that the desert might rejoice and blossom as the rose. Oh, that our tombstones would say such things about our lives that we lived with the short amount of days that we have. That's the power of the Father, the presence of the Son, now for the purpose of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, Paul says we we share the same faith, all right? We, uh, We share the same spirit of the faith. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, we have by virtue of our faith in Christ. Now, the remainder of this passage talks about the work of the Spirit in the life of people who's experienced this gospelized heart. And he shows us that the Spirit speaks through us and he speaks to us, first through us. The purpose for God's people here and now isn't that we sit on our hands and wait for Jesus Christ to come back. Nor is it that we build up walls to to cut ourselves off from the brokenness of this world. Now, his desire for us is that we would see ourselves as his powerful agents of his grace, that we would speak, as Paul says. We're called to speak towards others and show them God's mercy God desires to speak through our lives as we minister into the brokenness of the people around us. So that what? So that God's grace may come to them. I'm not making this up. It's in verse 15. You see that? For it is all for your sake, so that, check this out, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
God's plan is that through his jars of clay people, his power would have effect so that his grace would extend to more and more people, generating thankfulness and praise to God. My friends, the vision of Grace Presbyterian Church is to see Long Island awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our calling as a people. I hope that uh, I hope that captivates you. <laughs> I hope it gets you excited about who we are as a church. I don't know. This this looks hard to me. You know, I I don't know about dying to myself. You know, I'm I'm pretty good at wanting to sit on the couch with a bag of chips and watch football for 12 hours. I don't I don't know. I think this maybe this message is for me. But I want this to be who we are. I want this to be who I am. Our community needs this. We, we, we're surrounded by brokenness. Yesterday I held this woman whose son killed himself ten days prior. She would not stop sobbing. I could have held her for hours. It never would have ended. And about 20 minutes after the ceremony, I was looking at my watch saying, I just need to get out of here. I'm going to go have dinner. That's my confession. God's plan is that he would work his power in us. God speaks through us, through his Holy Spirit, as our hearts become enlivened by this gospel. But he also speaks to us. I want to end with this. To live this way means you no longer avoid the brokenness of the world, right? But rather you enter into it. It means, here's what it means, guys. It means harder life for you. Not easier. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit just doesn't speak through us. He speaks to us. We see it in verses 16 through 18. Here Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit helps us to see that our suffering in light of eternity, (laughs) it really ain't much. (laughs) It's not all that much compared to eternity and the glory that is to come. You perhaps are thinking, well, Paul, I mean, he's an apostle. I mean, of course, it's light, momentary affliction for Paul. No, read the story of Paul. See the hardship and the shipwrecks and the beatings and the ridicule and the mocking, endless in his life. He calls them light and momentary afflictions. Verse 16. Because of all of this, we do not lose heart. Though our outward self, our jars of clay, are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. A gospelized heart is doing this work. God's power in us. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the 
things that are unseen are eternal. He's not like saying just spiritual things. He's saying the things all around us, the physical and the spiritual. It's, it's, it's really not the reality that is to come. There is an unseen that's coming, a resurrection that God has promised us. That is coming. And it's a, there's a glory awaiting us beyond all comparison. I think it might be good for us to spend a little time this week meditating on this passage because there is a glory awaiting for us. It's weight of which um, we cannot even fathom. And it's for us who are in Christ Jesus. One day Christ will return and he will swallow up all that is broken and he will recreate the universe in splendor and perfection. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in us to remind us of this. That's God's grace towards us. Even now, just, just this the preaching of this message is a means of God's grace to remind us of how much he cares for us and what his plan is. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to, to cause us to go, oh, yeah, this is hard, but it's nothing to compare to what's to come. Where does this leave us this morning? I don't know. It depends. I mean, it, do you know the Lord? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, what are you really? I mean. You admit, right, that there is a brokenness in this world and really we're all Humpty Dumpties and king's horses and king's men. We're not really doing a good job of putting it back together. Perhaps there is there is a story in which God's glory comes and restores all things through a son. Maybe that's true. I invite you to, to believe that, to receive that. Everything else is just shaky ground and, and fading fast. I pray that God would lift that veil, that you would see the gospel and believe most of us here, we, we've received Christ. We believe him. Uh, hopefully we come to see more clearly the brokenness around us. God has a plan for. One day it will be all taken care of. But it doesn't mean we just sit and go, all right, I can't wait for that day. Meanwhile, I'm just going to fish the rest of my life. You know, not that there's anything wrong with fishing. We're supposed to find some leisure time. All right? I hope you don't take that wrong. But I think we're focused, focused so much on finding relief from the brokenness in things other than God himself. Maybe be reminded that our hope is in Christ, that the glory of God comes to us in his son, that our hope for brokenness is in Christ. And as we find ourselves in need of rebuke, as I am, that we would look to the cross and be reminded, I am a, a worn out winter wiper blade and I make a lot of streaks. And I'm thankful that I have a savior who loves me, streaks and all, and forgives me. And that his death is in me so that so that his life may come out of me. I, I hope that we embrace that today. And I hope, Grace Church, that we, we see we live in a beautiful place. We live in a place that's surrounded with a lot of opportunities to be distracted from the brokenness of this world, right? What if we weren't distracted but maybe used this beauty to help other people? Maybe what if we had a, a retreat center out here where Christians could bring their not yet believing friends out and where where they could be ministered to by a host family that loves people well and, and is able to share the gospel and is able to help um, minister to some of the woundedness that people have and point them towards Christ. What if we could do that? Did you know, that's part of our one of our goals as a church. What if we really like loved our neighbors well? I mean, like. That's where we're looking at the watch all the time, you know, but we really did care about them deep in their souls. Yeah, not just the ones who have easy needs to fix, but maybe the prideful people, the people who are difficult and stubborn. The one that usually cause you to say, well, go fix it yourself, dude. You know, what if we were really to care for them with the love of Christ and minister to them and bring this gospel of hope? 
Our calling is jars of clay filled with the powerful spirit of God is that we are to spread his grace to more and more people. So more and more people are able to look at Jesus and see in him God's glory and respond with worship and praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have here in Jesus. And this is hard. It just really cuts to our idols. It just really hits us in, in, our, in our hearts. We, we need your work of your Holy Spirit to renovate us more and more. We thank you that you are kind and gracious. We thank you that we have this ministry by your mercy. And so we plead upon your mercy now. Be merciful with us. Help us to see things as you see things. Help us to gain an eternal perspective. Help us to see our neighbors in their brokenness and to see ourselves in our brokenness and bring the gospel to bear. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.